This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by Bird Campbell PA with law offices in Florida and Texas. Bird Campbell means business. Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 102 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, January 28th, 2018. Not the best week for the Blue Devils, but we'll get into all that. I am your host this week, Sam Klein, coming to you as I usually do from Denver. And I am joined, not as usual, by two, uh, two co-hosts, rather just one. We don't have Donald this week. He's busy doing, doing some soccer thing or another. So all I've got... Uh, to join me to talk about this Virginia game is Jason Evans over in Atlanta. Jason, ha, ha, give me give me a general sense of your feelings since the Virginia game because I think I've seen, you know, obviously any of the pessimism that comes from a from a loss, but also I think maybe a little bit of optimism. Maybe maybe some things aren't as bad as as we perceive them to be. So, what's your kind of general feeling today? I, I was I was pissed. I was upset. Um, in immediately following the loss, um, for a lot of lot of different reasons, um, I I I'm going to try really hard not to be too hard on the officials, but I thought that the 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 refs really let Virginia play the kind of game Virginia wanted to play. Um, and, and I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming it on the refs. I'm not doing that at all. But Virginia's style, what Virginia wants to do is they want to grab, they want to hold, they want to hip check, they want to be really physical with you, they want to make you uncomfortable, and they sort of dare the officials, they dare the refs to call fouls. You could call, you could easily call a foul on a Virginia player on defense every single time they have the ball. And for that matter, on offense, Virginia does a lot of pushing off and things like that. I, I, I'm saying all this based both on my observations and I have several friends who were at the game and, and it was amazing how these friends who, who didn't discuss this in advance they did, or, or after the game even, they, they independently um, came forward and said, uh, you know, watching Virginia up close, they were, they were struck by how much fouling Virginia does. So Virginia dares the refs to call a foul on every single possession. They, knows that the, they know the refs won't do that. Um, and, uh, and they've sort of become masters, Virginia has, at um, at using enough contact, being physical enough so that it makes you uncomfortable, but so that it doesn't um, get a foul called. And, and that's a skill. It's a tremendous skill. And oh, they yeah. use that and they made Duke really uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that is a, that is a thing you, you practice and think about and, and have in your game plan if you're Virginia, because you know that nobody wants to sit through a two and a half hour basketball game, which is what it becomes if you call fouls on every play. So the refs, you know, rightly or wrongly, sort of adjust according to the style that's being played. If, if, they're, if they're not being overly aggressive and physical, then they'll, they'll call touchier fouls because, oh, well, we, we, we should call some fouls. I think that there's kind of an expectation that by the end of each half, the both teams will at least be in the single bonus and maybe they're in the double bonus. And 
you know, Duke was Duke was in the double bonus, I think, quickly in both in both halves in this game. But before we before we get too deep on on Virginia, I did want to quickly recap Duke's week. So it, it started well enough. They they had a 14 point win on the road at Wake Forest, um, completing the season series against Wake. They they beat them twice by double digits, once in Cameron and once in Winston-Salem. But then this game against Virginia was really the highlight of the week. That was Saturday afternoon in Cameron Indoor. It was, uh, I was watching it on TV, but it looked like, like a vintage Cameron crowd. And Duke was down by a lot in the, in the first half. I think they, they got down by 12 or 14 points, rallied back in the second half, actually took the lead. We're up by about three um, with six or seven minutes left. And then, and then UVA sort of clawed back and held on to the lead down the stretch. Uh, a lot of missed free throws for the Blue Devils. Uh, oh, boy. I, I, I know we're, we're going to talk about that. The final score was 65 to 63. And, and I think a lot of times we say that a final score may not be necessarily indicative of, you know, oh, well, well this team was winning by, by 8 or 10 points all the way, and then right at the end they, like, pulled their guys, and they only ended up winning by 3 or, or something like that. I think this, this final score... UVA winning by by two points actually does tell you like a, a good idea of of how the whole game went because there were stretches where Virginia was dominant, there were stretches where Duke was dominant, but UVA was a little bit more consistent, I think. So with that, Jason, I, feel free to not spend too much time on the Wake Forest game. We've already seen Duke play them twice. We're not going to see them again, and I don't think that Wake is going to be making a lot of noise in postseason tournaments. Let's focus on the UVA game. And um, why don't we start in the first half where Duke was not as strong. They, um, the, the first couple minutes of the game were, were back and forth and were pretty good. And then UVA's defense just totally shut Duke down towards the end of the first half. And they, and they built a steady lead. Again, not like UVA scores a ton of points. They, they were only in the 30s at halftime. But Duke had scored 22, their lowest output of the season in a first half. So starting with the first half, what do you think was, was Duke's problem on offense um, that that led to them only scoring twenty two and a half as a, a team that has arguably the best offense in the country. I think that there's no degree that you can talk about this game without stressing experience. Um, and the Virginia team um, is a very experienced team. They're not like all seniors, but these are guys who've been around college basketball for a while. They know the way they want to play. They've seen a lot more than the Duke freshmen have. Um, and, and this was a game where almost exclusively Duke was playing freshman and Grayson Allen. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, if we're going to get into the bench a little bit later. Um, there were some really interesting <laughs> developments with Duke not playing the bench pretty much at all. I was going to say, that there, there weren't any developments with the bench. <laughs> right, right. But barely uh, saw Alex O'Connell but, and Javin Delore. <laughs> right. So the reason I brought up experience is because I think that um, I absolutely believe that that Coach K and Capel and and Nate James and John Shire that the coaching staff told these guys what to expect against Virginia. Um, I'm sure Grayson Allen told them what to expect to get the Virginia's going to be physical. They're going to be in your face. They're going to throw a lot of double teams at you. You know this is going to be the toughest defensive team you've ever seen. Telling you what you're going to face and and I'm sure they they tried to simulate it in practice as best they could. I don't know how you could possibly simulate what Virginia does on defense in, in practice with your bench. But but, the, I guess you could put all the starters in like heavier shoes. You know, they, yeah. all have to, they all have to run in like, in like five pound shoes. Yeah. And, and you could put and, seven and defenders on the floor. 
something yeah. like that, maybe. But you, can't, but you can't replicate Virginia's. A, Virginia's big. A lot of their guys, like, I mean, they're not like the biggest team you've ever seen, but they're pretty big. And Duke has. They're a, long. They're also and, long. They're long. And, and that helps them play the, the, the kind of defense they want to play. They're, they're trapping. They're not going to let you get into the paint. And, and I, I, I hope you're about to get to the fact that um, UVA doesn't normally cause a lot of turnovers. They more just want to have you run the whole shot clock, take a bad shot, get the defensive rebound, and, and go down the floor. On Saturday, Duke committed a lot of turnovers relative to what they've been doing this year and what UVA has been forcing this year. Yeah, I, I, well, I, the point I was going to to make about experience was I think that Duke didn't know what they were going to face against Virginia. Um, as much as we practiced and tried and probably watched film and all these other things, until we got out there, our guys didn't understand what it was they were going to face. Um, and a, a, as a result, we started out the game not sure how to attack this thing. And you're right, turnovers were a huge part of the story. Um, and the number of unforced turnovers was the really surprising thing. You, you, you were brilliant to, to point out Virginia is not a team. It's not one of these teams. West Virginia, who's another great defensive team, traps a lot and tries to force you into turnovers. Um, Virginia's attitude is, yeah, they trap a lot, but they're trapping because they're just trying to take the ball out of a, a spot where it's dangerous and send it someplace where it's not dangerous. Virginia is about it, making Virginia you, wants take you to take bad shots. Yeah, it, it's all about bad shots. And, so and, for, and there, were, there were a fair number of those, and we expected that. We talked about that in the preview. But, yeah. the, but there were a lot more turnovers than, than you normally expect. Right, so for Duke to be turning the ball over in addition to taking the bad shots that's all you can get against Virginia, it is a fatal, fatal mix uh, and, and a huge, huge problem for the team in this game. Uh, Virginia destroyed us in, uh, you know, in the turnover column. Um, as a result of that, uh, my favorite stat, I talk about it all the time, Virginia took 66 shots in this game, 66 field attempts, Duke only had 56 field goal attempts. They had 10 more field goal attempts than we did, which means that if we're going to beat them, we're going to have to shoot lights out to do it. We're going to have to shoot way better than they do, or we're going to have to shoot crazy good from the three-point line or crazy good from the free throw line. Well, we shot better than they did, but not a lot better. We did not shoot better from three. We did not shoot better from the free throw line. As a result, Duke lost this game. Um, uh, and the turnovers were the reason that we suffered in the field goal attempts. We were negative 11 in turnover margin, 11 more turnovers than Virginia had, and we were negative 10 in field goal attempts. It's no coincidence that those two numbers come close and, to matching and, and, up. And those, those make up for Duke's still significant uh, positive margin in rebounding. That, yeah, you know, although, although it was very interesting, we did not have a we, – we did have a – we out-rebounded we out them by 13, which is a big number. Um, and, and I've talked many times this year about the importance of the rebounding margin for Duke. The place where we did not out-rebound them that well was the offensive boards. Duke had 12 offensive rebounds. Virginia had 10. And Virginia actually scored more second-chance points than Duke did. Virginia had 12 second-chance points, points off rebound. Duke's, Duke only had 10. And I'm telling you, down the stretch, tell me if you felt this way, in the second half, the final five minutes or so of the game, when Duke had a little lead or it was tied or maybe Virginia, you know, it was back and forth, it felt like every time Virginia missed, they got the rebound and they got a basket. And that yeah. was that, that was, was the key. That was the, the last five minutes of the game was, yeah. was UVA getting, uh, getting second chance points and Duke throwing away opportunities at the free throw line. I, I, I want to get to the end of the game 
Um, wait, wait, you said free throw. Hold on. Free throw. So I've got, yeah, you want to get to the end of the game? Well, I, I was going to say, I, I wanted to do, I wanted to do the first half and, and, and we, we kind of touched on the key thing, which I think was the turnovers before we get to the end game situation. I do want to look at the, the segment of the second half where Duke looked like they were gaining control again, because if you want to be an optimist about this Duke team and, and their chances in the postseason, I think that you look at that 12, 13 minute stretch in the, in, at the beginning of the second half against UVA and say, that's a Duke team that can't be beat. And, and, and that is, that's exactly that, like that CBS article about zombie Duke. That, that was like, I guess if you want to call it vintage, zombie Duke was, was on display where UVA was still employing their defense. They were still getting a lot of the same traps they wanted, but Duke was able to pass out of them, was able to get the ball inside, was able to move around the perimeter, wherever they wanted on offense. And Duke's defensive intensity was kind of turned up. They, they employed the zone. The numbers, I don't Yes, that's what I was, I was just going to say. Zone. The first half we played man-to-man. The second half we played zone. And, and it's really easy to look at the two halves and go, well, Virginia scored 32 points in the first half. They scored 33 points in the second half. It's basically the same. No, wrong. I'm telling you the difference. You want to know the difference? The difference was in the first half, Virginia scored 32 points, and it felt like they were pretty efficient when they scored them. It felt like they were able to, when they didn't get a bucket, they were able to come back down and get their defense set. I thought one of the key things about the zone was we were getting so many stops against Virginia, so many one-and-done trips. They would take a shot, we would get the rebound, and we would immediately start coming up the floor. It was not a fast break. But Virginia's defense wasn't quite as set. We weren't playing a, you know, sort of passive, slow-paced half-court game. We were able to get things moving a little bit quicker, and that's why we were able to score 41 points in the second half. 41 points against Virginia. That's a, cra- that's a silly number. To get 41 points in a half against Virginia, Virginia sometimes doesn't give up 41 points in a whole game. That being said, I think it's the zone. The zone frustrated them and it allowed us to get out a little bit more, a little bit quicker, a few more possessions. Uh, If we played zone in the first half, we win this game. I'm telling you, we win this game. I'm not sure if that's true, only because there was a point later in the second half, and and it's about kind of like when the tables turned back against Duke, that Virginia appeared to kind of figure out how to play in the zone a little bit better. At first, they were they were taking like ugly mid range shots, like like they might not have been contested, but they were out of rhythm and and you could tell not the shots that that the players wanted to play. I think that Tony Isaiah, Bennett, it was Isaiah I Wilkins. Bennett, Isaiah Wilkins yeah. taking ten footers. Right. Isaiah Wilkins Isaiah taking Wilkins, ten footers was uh, ugly. <laughs> I, I credit to Tony Bennett because because I think that there must have been a timeout in there or something where he explains to them he was like, look. Those aren't the shots you want to take against this defense. I'm sure they reviewed it in practice, but they kind of needed the the refresher that you know the the way to um, the way to attack the zone is to run the offense through that area, but not necessarily to take the shots there. You know, you you want to use you want to use that kind of middle um, top of the free throw line area to to be like the entry pass that then can go in lots of directions, so that you sort of confuse the defense. And I don't. I don't know that Duke could have held up even playing like 20 minutes of zone without UVA figuring it out. We, we said last week, UVA obviously has a stellar defense, like a historically good defense. They're also not inefficient on offense, right? They're, they're somewhere in like the 30s or 40s in Ken Palm on, on, on offense. So yes. it's not like they can't score. They just do it slowly. And so I think they got 
I think they got better at that. That that was actually, I think, part of what caused the turnaround is that I think the the switch flipped a bit for them on the zone defense. What I would like to see more of is not necessarily. I mean, yes, it, it, it is about more zone defense. I want to see them mix up more randomly throughout the game so that teams kind of have to readjust their mindset because because the if the defense is set a certain way, you just have to have to tell the guys like, okay, we're going to play two or three possessions like this, or maybe you know since. Duke appeared to uh, to really enjoy doing that three man press um, following the made baskets. Um, maybe there's a the way that they can pattern their defense around switching back and forth. Maybe I, I I feel like Virginia got a hang of the zone defense eventually, and that's what that was part of what what changed the tone of the game at the end. Um, but I did like I, I agree with you though. It did seem to frustrate them for a stretch. I would like to see it come in more frequent, shorter stretches. So we might only see it for 10 minutes a game, but maybe spread it out because you don't know when, um, when the other team is going to feel like, oh, we're, we're getting in this rhythm where we're being able to uh, beat our guys off the dribble or we're able to, to run good screens where, where Duke's bigs are kind of left guarding no one at the, <laughs> out in the perimeter, which appears to be like a, a years-old problem for them. Um, I want to see them switch it up more and and more frequently so that they can frustrate those offenses who are smart and do have veteran players and know how to uh, know how to counter that kind of thing. Does that does that kind of make sense? It, it does. Uh, I, I would do I have permission, sir. Am I allowed to talk about the free throws now? <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, I, I mean, sure. Like, it's, oh, it, it, I mean, it's it, so it, frustrating. It about it, but but yeah, say your piece about about missing the front ends of one on ones constantly. In the final seven minutes of a two point game, in the final seven minutes of a game against a team that is so hard to score against, Duke went to the line potentially for eight points at the free throw line because we had three front ends of one and one, and Wendell Carter got got fouled and was taking two free throws. So three one-and-ones, you should shoot, take two shots each time. As far as I'm concerned, that's six. And Wendell Carter taking two free throws, that's eight. We had eight potential points against the toughest defense to score against in the country. And of those eight points, we came away with one. If we even get half of those eight points, if we even hit four of those eight potential free throws, Duke wins this game. I mean... And, and that's why I say that. That's why I, I said earlier that the final score really does feel representative of what the overall story of the game is. Because Duke only lost by two points. They had, I, I think, the free throws are one way they 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 could have won this game. Um, I think that the the offensive confusion in the first half, coupled with um, sort of lackluster defense, could have could have won this game. There were a number of ways. Duke could have won this game by three, five, six points, and and I, but but yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the easiest thing to point to, and the thing that I think is going to get fans the most riled up. Hopefully, nobody breaks into wherever it is Wendell Carter lives these days to to show him how to shoot free throws. But <laughs> but, but the but the free Kansas throw is, Kansas reference. That's right. Um, but the but the free throw shooting is is like it seems like it should be the easiest thing to fix, especially when you're at home. I mean. You know, on the road, it's a different story. Making free throws on the road is hard. At home, you should be able to make free throws. So, I, yeah, and look, that, and, and, that part of it was frustrating. But what about, I mean, what about the, a lot of the silly turnovers towards the end of the game? We, we, we talked about the turnovers earlier. There were 
Um, Duval had a had like a full court pass that just sailed out in the you know towards the end of the game that that was sort of an unforced error from him. Um, he had a he had a number of passes that it, it wasn't clear what he was going for or, or drives where he knew he was going to the rim, but he wasn't sure what he was going to do when he got there because he knew because there were going to be three Cavalier defenders standing all around him. So uh, I, I think there were execution problems down the stretch. Marvin Bagley was like the only Blue Devil who was able to score at the end of the game. And, you know, Grayson Allen did almost nothing on offense, at least scoring-wise. I mean, our, but Duval and, and Allen like, couldn't score. Our, our, our three guards combined to go one of eight from three. Allen, Duvall, and Trent, not a single one of them hit half their shots, even really came cl- I guess Duvall was three of seven from the floor, so he was close to hitting half of his shots. But Gary Trent, three of 11. Grayson Allen, two of eight. And, and the, the one thing that you can usually get against Virginia is usually you can, you can get an outside shot because um, you know, their, their goal is to, to make you take difficult shots. And as far as they're concerned, if you're shooting from beyond the three-point line, that's usually a difficult shot. Now, I'm not saying they give you wide-open threes because they really don't. They can test those threes as best they can. But the key to beating Virginia is almost always to hit you know, a few more threes, and, and we didn't, not at all. And, and for it to have been a home game, it, it's really frustrating that, that it, it, it ended up that way. Um, I, I, I don't know what's with Grayson Allen. Um, uh, we're, we're going on probably three weeks now of him being maybe even longer than three weeks. I mean, I haven't looked at the stats to see, but dude's in a, he's in a pretty prolonged slump. I mean, he had and, five. And, and I, I, I said, I, I don't remember. I think it was last week, maybe the week before I, I compared it to Kyle Singler's 2011 slump and how, you know, he, he was still making an impact around the court. I still think that Allen does a lot of things that, that other guys on the team either choose not to do or, or can't just with his intensity and uh, the, the way that he plays defense, the way that he sees the court. But if he can't make shots, it, it really limits his effectiveness. And, and this is a team that has struggled um, to make shots from outside at, at, for stretches this year. You know, the, the offense a lot of times seems to run through the paint, whether it's from the big men or from the, from the driving. And, and Allen, yeah, is, the, is kind of the, the center of attention as far as, as far as we can see, uh, you know, for for why the offense doesn't work exactly the way we want it to, even though the offensive efficiency is still good, and even though scoring sixty three points against Virginia is still pretty good, I think that might might be their the the most points they've given up to an ACC opponent so far this year, or close to it. So you know, it, it's it's hard to fault that overall, but but we could see very plainly that Duke could have had. 70, 72 points in this game without really changing much of the game plan or the execution. Uh, Grayson Allen has now scored five points or less in three of his past five games. Uh, it, it's, it's just been a while since he looked like the player that he was uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you're right. It's Virginia. And Virginia is, uh, you know, truly, truly great on on defense. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe that's the thing. I, I'll say one thing, you know, in terms of looking at the whole ACC right now, um, I think the conference, the regular season race is over. Dude, we're not yeah. going to catch Virginia. Well, Virginia has a three game lead. We're not it. catching Virginia. It's all done. Um, because there's and, no and, way. And, and Virginia is not going to play a harder game than in Cameron. Right. I mean, right. The, right. Well, even that, look, that's uh, the hardest game you can play. <laughs> 
they they play they play low scoring games, and as a result, you know, if someone gets hot for a minute, it can it can change the outcome of a game. I, I don't you know I don't think Virginia is going to go undefeated in the conference this year. But you talked about consistency at the very very beginning of the of the podcast. Virginia's defense means that they are consistent because they always are able to play that hard on D. It's not like <laughs> it's not like every so often Virginia's going to go off and oops, we had a game where we gave up 80 points. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't exist when you play yeah. Virginia. So uh, the 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 notion that they're going to suddenly uh, drop three games in the rest of the conference season to me is is absurd. They're not. Virginia's and winning the have- ACC regular season. We're in a battle with Louisville and Clemson and Florida Clemson State and, and UNC for yeah. Yeah, I, I actually think, you know, it's sort of us and Louisville for the second place in the conference. The, there's some real issues of those other teams that are sort of in the, uh, you know, a game or so above 500 right now. Um, a lot of teams with issues in there. But anyway, uh, I think at this point, it's crazy to say nine games halfway through the ACC regular season, the ACC regular season race is done. Yeah, Virginia does have two games against Louisville. Um, and I think they might still have to go on the road to at least one of those other uh, one of those other strong programs, but um, yeah, I mean, they have to play at Miami um, who at least was supposed to be good. They have to play at Syracuse, but you figure if, yeah, they're able, no. if, if they're able, if they're able to play, not their. I don't think Virginia played their best on Saturday. Um, you know, given that, given the run that Duke went on in the second half, Virginia was not at their best. If they are, if they are yeah, not look, at their I'm... best and can win in Cameron, um, then then they, 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 I mean, they, they might lose one game in conference this year. They're, they're a good three-point shooting team. They only hit 27% of their threes against Duke. I mean, it would not have been unreasonable for them to knock down, you know, say two, maybe even three more three-point baskets, um, you know, to get their percentage closer to like 38, 40%, which is not unusual for them. <laughs> if they do that, they win the game going away. So, yeah, they're, they're – look, the thing you can take heart from in this – is uh, Duke fought hard and battled and played really well and played pretty much even with a team that looks like they're one of the best, if not the best in the country. So we're among the best. Um, and if there was any, I don't know that there was any question about that, but if there was any question about that, I think that that's been answered. Um, well, and, and, and Duke also comes away from this game with a lot of good game tape about how to play well against good opponents and how not to play against good opponents. because. You know, I, I, I think that there's a bit of a disservice to the program when they play games against overmatched opponents. And, you know, they, they can look and, like, if you watch um, Duke Blue Planet puts out those, some of those, like, Coach Capel film room videos where, he's, where he sits down with individual players and, and goes through, like, kind of, oh, here's the thing you did well. Those, those things are great, but, but if, if, let's say, Wake Forest doesn't have anybody who can guard Gary Trent on the perimeter and, and, Coach Cable's like, look, Gary Trent, here's all the great threes you made. Like, here's the here's all the great ways you got open against Wake Forest. Well, that's only instructive if you're if you're playing a team that doesn't have guards that can keep up with you. Duke had Duke has a great stretch against Virginia where they can point to a lot of good done by most of the guys on the team that that says, you know, here are the things you need to do when when the going gets tough. Um, here's here's how to here's how to get open. Here's how to get space. I think that both Bagley and Carter showed. Um, some some really impressive moves against Virginia that they're going to be able to pull their use against lots of opponents going forward. And so those teaching moments are important also to show here are the things you don't do Trevon Duval 
about handling the ball against a team that that is gets back on defense really quick and and guards the lane really really well. Um, so I like that part of it. Um, they have you know they have time to to review those things. They have time to play against other good opponents. They still have to play Louisville. They still have to play North Carolina twice, and, and so they'll have opportunities to prove against maybe not opponents as good as Virginia, but against good you know top three, four, five seed type teams in the NCAA tournament that that they know um, sort of how to, how to handle that kind of environment. Two other really, really quick things um, about the Virginia game. And then I want to move on because I want to, there are a couple things I want to say about the Wake game. But um, I said before this game that the first team to 65 would win. And I was right. <laughs> Virginia got to 65. That was a great, there, that was a great assessment. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I think it is worth noting that um, Duke had scored 78 points or more in every single game this season. 78 plus and Virginia held us to 63. So I, I want to again tip my cap to Virginia. Um a, a hell of an effort on their part and they're a truly great defensive team worthy of all the accolades being thrown their direction. And then the last thing I want to note, I want to go back to, you know, sort of the free throws again um because there's there's something about the free throws on a bigger level than just this one game. Duke is great at getting to the free throw line. Um, we averaged 23.4 free throws per game, 23.4, which puts us 27th among all teams in Division I basketball. When you consider that there are 350 plus teams, we're, you know, we're easily top 10%. We're very, very good at getting to the free throw line. 27th in the country. We, however, are 250th at free throw percentage. We hit only yeah, that's, 68 points. Yeah, so we get to the line a lot, and yet we're in the bottom third of all teams in Division I basketball in hitting our free throws. I'm sure the coaches work on it. I'm sure the guys work on it. I don't know that it's something that can be fixed in the next month, month and a half before the NCAA it's, tournament. It's the, easiest thing, it's the easiest thing to identify, maybe one of the hardest things to replicate in practice, being yep. in a game and where... You know, I, I, like you might just have to run your practice and every so often just blow the whistle and have everybody take a free throw and then keep going because that's yeah. what in-game free throws are like. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I was going to say, I, I, I don't know, you know, how we fix it or if it's something that can be fixed in, in six weeks. But if, uh, uh, if Duke loses in the tournament, if Duke loses late in the season, I bet it will be something we'll be discussing again. Um, it feels like that is this team's Achilles heel uh, is free throw shooting. So we'll see. Let's do what you what you had alluded to uh, just prior and go over the weight game really fast. And then I want to talk about next week's opponents, the uh, Fighting Irish of Notre Dame and the what are they called now? The Red Storm at, at St. John's. Uh, yeah. The red suck who, The red yeah. suck is what they are. <laughs> well, we'll 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 get into them really briefly. Why don't you give me your impressions from the Wake Forest game? Um, if there's anything in particular that that you want to share about about that one, there are two things worth pointing out about this Wake Forest game. The first one is on a macro level. Again, on the in terms of Duke winning the game, um, uh, the biggest thing to me was Wake Forest turnovers. I, I don't think I've ever seen an ACC team just give away the ball the way Wake Forest did in this game. They committed 21 turnovers. And yeah, Duke was 
you know, pressuring them some and we were playing defense and I thought we played pretty good defense, but I got, there were at least a half dozen and maybe more like eight or 10 of these turnovers by wake that were just, they just threw the ball away. Like they literally threw it into the crowd. They dribbled it off their foot. They traveled for no, they were, they were terrible. I that's, mean, a, just, that's a team. That's a team that's intimidated by a team like Duke, and and there's not a whole lot they can do about that, right? And it's going to manifest yeah. in them making silly mistakes. Uh, no, I I I agree, and um, I like Danny Manning. Uh, he, he seems like a good guy. He seems like he wants to do things the right way. Uh, it it really feels like he's in over his head. It, it uh, he's not getting it done at Wake Forest. Um, they're not going to play in any postseason this year. Um, if it were not for Pitt being an utter shambles, I think, you know, uh, Wake would, Wake would clearly be the worst team in the, 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 alongside Pitt, they're the two worst teams in the conference and Wake is barely competitive at this point with most of the teams in the league. Um, and, and there's some talent on that team. So it's, it's kind of surprising how bad they are, but in terms of Duke, the thing I want to talk about is Trevon Duval or however he's pronouncing his name now. Um, was just putridly bad. And um, I think it's really interesting that Coach K noticed it and basically sat Duval for, uh, I want to say, like the the last 10 minutes of the game. He he basically didn't play down the stretch in this game um, because Alex O'Connell was playing um, pretty much the whole time. And Alex O'Connell, I thought, played great basketball. He had a couple steals. He was three for three from the floor for seven points, including a three-pointer. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he looked really nice in this game. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, you know, we didn't talk about the bench against UVA. Um, uh, the report out of the game was one of the reasons O'Connell didn't play against UVA very much. He only played three minutes was because he, he was, he's got a little bit of a flu bug that he got a flu bug the past couple of days. And so he wasn't feeling great. And as a result, he only played three minutes against UVA. Um, Javin Deloria also only played three minutes against UVA. They say that Deloria is also still sort of working his way back into shape after um, being out for, for uh, like a week, a week and a half, something like that. Um, was it a hamstring? I forget what it was. Um, yeah, it's a hamstring injury. Yeah, hamstring. Yeah. So anyway, but I was going to say that the interesting thing about this Wake Forest game was with Duval playing that poorly, um, Duke went to O'Connell and I thought Duke looked, you know, just fine. Very, very good. In fact, playing with O'Connell out there. It's too bad for the scorecard that we don't keep on our own predictions that the we, we didn't we weren't able to do a show between the Wake Forest game and the Virginia game, because I would bet that you would have come on and been like, guys. Trevon Duval doesn't get it. Alex O'Connell looks great. I'm telling you that O'Connell's going to play 15 minutes against Virginia. And I, I have like no doubt you would have said that. And, <laughs> and, and, and I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had a good retort to it based on what we saw against the Wake Forest, except then O'Connell, you know, was sick and, and only played three minutes against Virginia. So, um, yeah, it wasn't a, his fault. It wasn't his win, fault. That's a win for you, my friend. <laughs> um, I'll say this. Uh, I, I haven't looked and I haven't checked lately, but in our preseason predictions where we predicted Alex O'Connell's minutes, every single one of us is going to be under. There's, I mean, he is, he is racing through any and all predictions of what we kind of a season we he didn't would realize that he was going to be the only guard off the bench who would get real minutes in, in ACC play. I think that it was reasonable at the beginning of the season to think that both Jordan Goldwire, because he's a point guard, 
and Jordan Tucker, because he was more highly ranked, were were potentially able to get more minutes than than O'Connell was. And 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 to his credit, O'Connell has has shown that he's that he is more effective against good competition than those guys. Tucker obviously not being with the team anymore. So one final thought on the Virginia game before we look ahead at the games this week. We've mentioned before that the show is sponsored by Bird Campbell PA and one of the founders of Bird Campbell, Mr. Jamie Campbell, was at the Duke game uh, in Cameron on Saturday against Virginia and he had um, he had some thoughts for us that he wanted to share. I think we thought about trying to get him on the show this weekend, but um, couldn't couldn't make that happen. But we do have uh, some words from him. So his take on the Virginia game was Virginia game was a heavyweight fight, which played out exactly as one would have expected. A bad pass here, a few missed free throws there, and a difficult result. Virginia ground out a great win, well deserved, and the crowd was great. So. Um, a, a nice summary from from Mr. Campbell. Thank you again to the folks at Bird Campbell for sponsoring the show. Okay, let's look ahead at the games this week. Duke has Duke has two games up on the schedule. Um, the first game is against Notre Dame Monday night. Duke's playing um, at home back in Cameron against the Fighting Irish, who have suffered uh, a, a number of of devastating injuries to the core of their roster, uh, most notably Bonzi Colson, but I know they've got a few others. So, uh, Jason, I'm going to give it to you. Give us kind of the rundown on Notre Dame. I think this is a game that the Duke should be able to win at home, but we know that Mike Bray's squad has been one of the toughest against the Blue Devils since they joined the conference. And um, even though they're, they're missing all those key players, ex- I expect that they're, they're still going to put up a fight, right? Yeah, you would think so. Um, uh, they're a very, very well-coached team, as you said. And um, still, coaching can only do so much when you're missing your two best players. Um, and and let's be clear, that's what they are missing in Bonzi Colson and Matt Farrell. Bonzi Colson, the big man, um, arguably alongside Marvin Bagley as the best big man in the ACC. And Matt Farrell, the scrappy but really, really, really good um, point guard guy who initiates their offense. He hits the big shots for them and things like that. For both of those guys, for their two best players, two guys who, honestly, if not for injury, probably would have been like first and second team all ACC. For them to be missing those two guys, it's just too much for Notre Dame. Um, They've now lost five games in a row. They, they've had some close games in those losses. They they lost to Louisville in two overtimes, two overtimes against Louisville. They only lost by one point to UNC, to Carolina, in a game that really could have gone either way. Some very you know controversial and crazy kind of stuff down the stretch in the final few seconds gave that one-point win to Carolina. Notre Dame has just been struggling to score lately, um, which is really unlike a Notre Dame team. Uh, they They got 75 points. Uh, over the weekend against Virginia Tech. Now, Virginia Tech plays at an extremely fast pace, up and down game. So 75 points is not to be you know, surprising against them. But uh, their other recent games, I mean, they only scored 53 points against Georgia Tech. They only scored 58 against Clemson. I mean, Tech and Clemson play slower and play good defense. But this is a, a Notre Dame team that is really, really struggling to score without Matt Farrell and Bonzi Colson. Matt Farrell's going to be back fairly soon, but not going to be back, they say, for the Duke game. And uh, the guy who's uh, – there's sort of been a couple guys stepping up lately. The, the major one is T.J. Gibbs. 
He has really been the man for them um, in recent games. He's averaging close to 20 points per game over the last four games. And then the other guy, and this is this is the big shocker. Um, before this season, if you'd asked me to name, you know, which guy on Notre Dame, if Bonzi Colson goes down, who's going to step up on the inside? I couldn't have told you who Martinez Gebin even was. Martinez Gebin from Vilnius, Lithuania. He's a 6'10", you know, forward, really plays center. This is a guy that over the course of his entire Notre Dame career up until this season, as a junior last year, he averaged three points per game. He didn't even play in most of their games. Um, it, this is a guy who didn't do anything as a freshman or a sophomore. And then now this year as a senior, dude's averaging 10 points per game and eight rebounds per game. He's really doing an excellent job on the boards for them in that two overtime loss to Louisville the other day. Get this. He had 22 points and 17 rebounds. Martinez Gevin is going to Pretty be good. their hope. What was that? It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He had 14 and nine against North Carolina. He had 16 and nine against Georgia Tech. This this guy's playing some really good basketball lately. Um, on the inside, he's he's beefy and strong, 6'10, 250 pounds. He is their hope. Um, because obviously when you play Duke this year, you get you say, How the heck do we stop? Carter and Bagley from just dominating the boards and, and dominating us on the inside. And, uh, you know, for Notre Dame, because they don't have Bonzi Colson, it's Martinez Gevin. And the thing that I worry about, if I'm a Notre Dame fan, Gevin is good and he's skilled, but he's not quick. He's more beefy and strong than he is athletic and agile. And man, I think he's going to have real trouble staying. He'll probably end up guarding Carter for the most part. He's going to have real trouble staying with with um, with Carter with Wendell yeah. Carter Jr. I, I and mean, that's that's kind of the story with with a lot of Duke's opponents this year is that if you don't have enough size to contend with both Bagley and Carter, it's going to be really challenging for you to to win a game, even in spite of having great intensity and and having an offense that moves the ball around really really well the way that Notre Dame often is able to do. Yeah, I think it's size, but it's athleticism also. Um, because you've got to be able to got to be able to get off the floor quickly with them. You have to be athletic enough so that they can't get around you very fast. You need length. And unfortunately, these are traits that Martinez Gebin doesn't really possess. Again, this guy has really built himself into a better player than anyone would have possibly thought or expected. Um, and he's, he's doing a really nice job lately for Notre Dame. Um, but he's not Bonzi Colson. And, and I, I think this is going to be one of these games where, um, Notre Dame is going to, they've been struggling to score. That is not a good thing to have against Duke. I'm sure they'll try and slow it down a little bit, fewer possessions, lower scoring game. Uh, you know, Notre Dame probably hopes to play this game in the seventies, you know, maybe in the sixties. Yeah, I think that's that, really, that, that's sounds, tough that sounds like a good goal for them. Yeah, but that's really tough. And, and they've been, they have, they've only gotten to 70 once in their past five games. Um, so, uh, and that was against fast pace for Virginia tech. Like I said, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Duke gets to 80 plus like we do most games. Cause again, I think Notre Dame will slow it down and try and play physical. But, uh, but I, I think I just have a tough time seeing Notre Dame being able to keep up with us offensively. Um, they will have some droughts. They will, they will have moments where they're just not able to contain us on the inside where we get lots of offensive rebounds and the such. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if I think, you know, Notre Dame still, a. a 
a proud team and a good team and a team that looks like they're probably going to make the NCAA tournament. But I think this is a double digit win for the Devils. They I, and and actually, I, I wouldn't be entirely confident that they make the tournament at this point. They've got a tough schedule ahead of them, and um, with their current roster, don't really have the the signature wins that. that say that they belong. I know that they have the win against Wichita State way back in November, but that was at full strength that they don't really have anymore. So, um, it, yeah, although a- the, the the only thing I would add is that um and it's it's way too early to even know about these things and and to project them, but the the committee when they're picking teams for the NCAA tournament will take injuries into account. Most people seem to think that Bonzi Colson will probably be back by the very end of the year. Hopefully we'll get to see him play a couple games for for Notre Dame and get a better sense of uh, exactly what their team is going to be like with him returned. Um, Matt Farrell it probably will be back in a week or so. Um, he's not going to play against Duke. My my bet is he doesn't play against NC State, um, but he'll probably be back. Um, you know, uh, once we hit like the the first second week of February, so they'll have several games with Matt Farrell back. And I think that the struggles they're having right now are not indicative of the team they will be at the end of the year. Well, for their sake, I hope it's true, but but probably won't be the case by the time we get to Monday night. So. The only other game Duke has this week is Saturday. Their, I think, I think usual game um, in Madison Square Garden against the home St. John's Red Storm, um, a a rivalry that I, th- I think actually goes back decades, and um, is one that, as a younger Duke fan who doesn't remember good St. John's, is one that has kind of always baffled me. I guess I get that Duke likes to play games in Madison Square Garden because. It's an opportunity for a lot of Northeast-based Duke fans to go to the game, uh, my dad included. I think my father's going to be at the game on Saturday in New York. But um, as far as, as competition goes, the St. John's team is, is nowhere near the, the heights that I think the program was expecting when Chris Mullen, you know, star former player Chris Mullen, came back to, um, to coach the Red Storm. They're, they're 0-10 in the Big East this year. Um, they, They've lost they 10 have, games in a row. 10, 10 in games. a row. Yep. Pretty and, bad. And their, their next game before they play Duke, they're playing Xavier, who's ranked in the top they 10. Probably, they will probably lose to them too. They got, they got absolutely blown out uh, by 25 against Butler this week. It was, it was in Hinkle Fieldhouse, but um, scoring 45 points in a game to a team that does not have the greatest defensive efficiency is, is maybe not the best indicator that, that you are on your way to success. Um, uh, yeah, like, like we said, they're, they're 0-10 in conference. They, they did have a, a couple nice um, Power 5-type wins in the, in the early goings in the season, but not against premier programs. It was against the likes of, of Oregon State. So St. John's not, not angling for a, for a postseason bid, unfortunately, for Duke, because this is, this is their last opportunity in the non-conference to show what they've got. Although, you know, I, I don't know how much Duke has to prove against, against top-level non-ACC opponents. That being said, um, St. John's does move the ball around pretty well. They've got four guys who are currently healthy who, who score in double figures. Um, they're led by Shamori Pons, who is a, uh, who is a um, sophomore um, point guard. He's from New York um, and uh, is, is averaging about 19 points a game. So I would, I would look for Duke to be trying to shut him down. Otherwise, not a ton that, that I specifically want to see against St. John's. I really am interested in, in how Duke rebounds from this UVA loss against both Notre Dame and St. John's. And 
you know, the next podcast we do is going to be previewing that UNC game that everybody always looks forward to. Um, Duke has Duke has a nice stretch here where they have somewhat of a quick turnaround between UVA and Notre Dame. It's only two days, but both games are at home. Then they've got another five days before they play in New York and then another five days before they play North Carolina. So they've got some time in here to work out some kinks in practice, maybe maybe fix some of the some of the defensive issues. Maybe I don't know if it's taking more free throws or or um, not throwing the ball out of the out of bounds, things like that. Um, perhaps we get a small window of opportunity here for the Blue Devils to make improvements. And like you said, Notre Dame is not is not anywhere near where they where they should be right now. St. John's certainly isn't. So Duke has Duke has a chance to um, maybe solve some things against non NCAA tournament opponents before they get back to playing kind of the highest quality on their schedule with, with UNC coming up next week, who did lose this weekend to NC state, which was fun uh, in overtime in Chapel Hill, but uh, it's still absolutely on track for, for a a pretty decent seed in the NCAA tournament. So um, I want to see the adjustments that that Duke makes against St. John's. I don't want to get too riled up about the specific matchup because I think Duke should be in good shape. Uh, They certainly always bring a good crowd to the garden, even if St. John's is the home team. So, um, so I, I'm I'm looking forward to that because I know that uh, we'll we'll hopefully see some changes. I the the one other thing that I would say at the, for this week is I hope that guys like Delorier and Bolden get healthy so that we can see them reintegrated into the rotation. Um, I don't think we've gotten much of a much of an idea about Marquise Bolden's injury, and honestly, it it seems it seems a little weird that we haven't talked more about it because. We we know that it's an MCL strain, which can be a, a, a nice range of of recovery times and and severity. So um, I don't know if it's if he's quite the profile of player that we need to be having a DBR forums type vigil for Marquise Bolden's knee. But uh, it does seem to be bothering him more than what was initially reported. Um, it sounded they made it sound like it wasn't a big deal, and and now we haven't seen him for a while. So. Um, maybe he gets healthy and comes back. Maybe Delorier gets over his hamstring injury and comes back. O'Connell isn't sick anymore. Um, in general, I want to just see all the players back on the court. Hopefully, these games are are easy wins for the Blue Devils. Well, so the the one thing I would say about St. John's, and it's uh, it's easy to dismiss them. The team's lost; they've lost ten games in a row. They're only eighth um, in Ken Palm, though. So it's not like yeah. Well, see, I was going to say um, they've lost ten games in a row, and and in there, like they've lost two games to Georgetown, who's bad. They, they lost to DePaul. DePaul's bad. But, you know, sort of the kind of hidden thing in there. Um, so they, they only lost by six points at Xavier. And Xavier's pretty good. They only lost by five points to Creighton. Creighton's pretty good. They only lost by seven points to Villanova. Villanova's really good. They're number one team in the land. They only lost by five points to Seton Hall. Seton Hall's making the tournament. They, they've had some pretty close games in here. And... So that says to me that they're they're not absolutely incapable of staying on the floor with good teams with a team like Duke. But there is, I think, there is some quality to being able to finish out the game and yeah, not doing yeah. it at any time in the Big East. No, and and I sort of wonder. Uh, you pointed out that Butler loss where over the weekend they lost to Butler by um, by twenty five points, seventy to forty five, and and uh, as I noted, they they play Xavier this week um, in just a couple days. Uh, I really wonder if Chris Mullen is starting to lose this team, 
and uh, you know that the the frustration of losing as many games in a row as they have been losing uh, is going to to cause them to kind of give up a little bit on the season. As a result, I mean they've got a they've got a really tough stretch here. They they played this game at Butler. Butler's good. They then play Xavier, ranked in the top ten. They play Duke, ranked in the top five. Then they play at Villanova, number one team in the land. That's their next three games: Xavier, Duke, and Villanova. I, I, I'll go out on a limb. There isn't a single team in the country that has a three game stretch that's as tough as that um, coming up for them. So this poor St. John's team that is zero and ten in the Big East, um, ten losses in a row, is about to play three top ten teams. And and I wonder that maybe they're giving up on the season. Maybe they're giving up on Chris Mullen. Chris Mullen is in his third year at St. John's now. He's yet to have a winning season. That's bad. And they're, and they're not on pace to have a winning season this year. Yeah, no, they're not. Um, yeah, it's I, I I'm generally skeptical of you know we we talked about Patrick Ewing's hire at at Georgetown. I am generally skeptical of you know program that has had previous success but not necessarily recently going out looking for a, a a splashy coach and just bringing the most prominent basketball alumnus that they can find to to coach the program and how i just don't I, I don't know that that makes a ton of sense if that coach isn't ready for the challenge of coaching in a major conference and chris mullen's kind of just more proof of that right i mean i i i don't know um i know that this is his first head coaching job i don't know all of what he was doing before, but I know he was a broadcaster for a while. Um, so it, it, it's tough um, to be a coach in, in a major conference. The Big East is not what it was a few years ago when they still had Syracuse and Notre Dame and Louisville and all those teams, but it's still pretty competitive. They've still got arguably the best team in the country in Villanova. They've got a Butler team that that uh, is always tough, Creighton, Xavier, all, the, all these programs. And St. John's just hasn't kept pace with them for, for a long time now. I, I, um, you were wondering about Chris Mullen. Yeah, he was a broadcaster for a little bit, but right prior to taking this job, he was in the front office. I believe it was for the Sacramento Kings. Um, and uh, so he was an NBA front office guy. And I think his exposure to the college game, it, it had been a couple decades um, of being out of college ball um, to when he took the, the St. John's head coaching job. And, and yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear he was probably in over his head. Oh well, they'll they'll probably be uh, looking for a new coach. Maybe maybe not this off season, but perhaps not far down the line. So let's finish off the show the way we normally do. Um, we'll do player of the week, and we will do um, parting shots. So I guess we'll start with player of the week. Uh, it was kind of an up and down week for the Blue Devils, but Jason, who do you have? as the player of the week? Uh, I got Wendell Carter Jr. Um, Marvin Bagley had a very good week, but I thought Wendell's week was a little tiny bit better. I thought Wendell was absolutely fantastic against Wake Forest. 23 points, 12 rebounds, a couple block shots, a couple assists. Um, and he was also really, really strong uh, against, against Virginia, against the tough interior play of Virginia. 14 points, 15 rebounds, four blocks, four assists, second on the team in assists. Um, uh, I, I, I give my player of the week to Wendell Carter Jr., a guy who it feels to me like he's been playing better and better as the season has moved along more and more. In the past couple weeks especially, he has been really spectacular. Yeah, I have, I have enjoyed Carter's play recently, and it, it's almost becoming cliche now that we talk about how he is overshadowed by, by Marvin Bagley, but it's true, even though he's nearly averaging a double-double now. 
um, that uh, Carter's been great. But I am going to give it to Bagley because down the stretch against Virginia, Wendell Carter was missing free throws and Bagley was making shots. Um, they both had really great weeks. I think I think you could say that it was one of the two of them. So I'm going to say it was Marvin Bagley um, for being like the only guy on the team to really get his numbers against against that tough Virginia defense. He had 30 points against Virginia. That's yeah, like good. that's unreal. <laughs> pretty good. Hey, let's uh let's finish with parting shots. I know that I've got a slightly more serious one, so why don't you go first? Okay, so uh this week I was driving home from uh, working down at CNN one day and listening to Atlanta Sports Radio and suddenly I recognized the voice of the person they were interviewing. It was David Cutcliffe, the head coach of the Duke football Blue Devils. Um, they complimented him profusely on his play-by, not play-by-play, play, but his analysis work on the national championship broadcast. Sam, something that you alerted us all to about how he uh, Cut was one of those coaches that was in that, uh, do they call it the coach's room or something like that? Yeah, it's the it's the ESPNU film room and the film and, room. And he right. did, he did, I, you know, obviously I'm biased towards Coach Cut, but I, I thought he did a wonderful job. But but yeah, I want to hear from from non Duke football fans about how great it was. Right. So so by the way, I should point out that Atlanta Southeastern Sports Radio is all about the football. Unless you're in the state of North Carolina, it is all about the football. So even after the college football season is over, they're still talking about nothing but college football on, on sports radio. So for these guys to say that he was the star of the show and that he, they thought he clearly belongs in a TV booth when he's done with his, uh, his regular career as a, as a coach, I, I, you know, I thought was a great compliment to Coach Cut. But the most interesting thing about the interview, they asked him about the academic standards at Duke. And, and look, Atlanta Sports Talk Radio is all about the SEC. Even though Georgia Tech is in Atlanta, these folks are obsessed with the SEC. And they said, look, at Duke, you've got very, very different academic standards than all the SEC schools. What's it like? How do you recruit? How do you get to bowl games? How do you win bowl games with the kind of academic standards you have at Duke? And I thought his answer was fascinating. Coach Cut said he considers it a blessing and that Whatever the threshold is, whatever the standard is that Duke says he has to reach for, from an academic standpoint, which, which, by the way, you know, is way higher than what these SEC schools have. He said he doesn't look at kids like that. He looks for kids even smarter than that because he said if you're a kid who's got like a, a 2.8 GPA and maybe you've scored 1,000 on your SAT and you're looking at Duke or you're looking at a Georgia or an Alabama or an Ole Miss or a Florida or a Tennessee – he said, you're going to go to the big time football school. You're going to go to the Georgia or the Alabama or the Tennessee or the Florida. If you've got a 2.8 and a thousand on your SAT, you're not going to go to Duke. He said, I don't even look at kids like that. But the kid who has the 4.0 and the 1500 SAT, then, then Coach Cut said, I've got a chance of convincing that kid to pick Duke instead of picking Georgia or Alabama. And he then spoke about Lakin Tomlinson the offensive lineman who was looking at Ohio State but was also looking at Duke. And Lakin Tomlinson was a brilliant kid. He was a kid who was pre-med. He wanted to go on to med school someday. And Coach Cut convinced him to come to Duke, and he became a first-round NFL draft pick. And so Cut said he embraces the academic standards that Duke has, and he actually looks for kids who are even smarter than the threshold Duke gives him. 
because he knows that's the kind of kid that he can get to play football at Duke, and that's the kind of kid who'll be successful playing football at Duke. It was it was a wonderful little insight into Coach Cut's recruiting mentality. And as we know, he's been recruiting. He's done a great job in recruiting at Duke lately. And uh, you know, obviously, our program continues to be on the rise with him. And and, and it makes me proud to hear him saying these kind of things on Atlanta Sports Talk Radio and to hear the Atlanta Sports Talk Radio guys gushing about what a fine coach he is, what a fine guy he is, and how smart the Duke program is to have him in charge of it. That's a, that, is a, that is a great one. I love that. Uh, we, You're welcome. You know, we, 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 heap, we heap praise on Coach Cutcliffe all the time, but it, it is nice certainly to hear it outside of kind of the triangle ACC bubble that, um, that other that other parts of the country, not that Atlanta is so far from, from North Carolina, but, but that. And, and you know, the, the nice thing for me was it was a nice break from listening to the five millionth breakdown of the final five minutes of the Georgia Alabama national championship game, because on sports talk radio yeah, in Atlanta, that's all they have talked about constantly, constantly. Every well, single show talks about it three times a day. It's crazy. I will say, I will say that when I encounter sec football fans and it comes up that, that I'm a, that I'm a Duke fan, SEC football fans, regardless of their, at least in my experience so far, regardless of their particular school affiliation, almost all have nice things to say about Coach Cutcliffe. I went, um, I went to a, a football game at Ole Miss a couple of years ago. I think I talked about it here that um, that people at Ole Miss still still uh, appreciate the job that Coach Cutcliffe did there, even though he was fired. Tennessee fans still appreciate him, and I think they have wished for a long time that he would come back to Knoxville and be their coach coaches at, or uh, fans of rival programs appreciate him. I think that, that he has sort of an underappreciated or, or, or sort of an understated general appreciation among football fans who know who he is because um, people think that he, you know, he's an upstanding guy and, and has used the, the best advantages that Duke can give him to build the program the way that, you know, we, we had talked prior to him and, um, about the program, about how there's no reason that Duke can't be a perennial bowl-going program the way that schools like Northwestern and Stanford, um, perhaps not Notre Dame, they're, I think, operating kind of in a different sphere, but that those other programs can be because because selling the academics can be a positive if you are going after the right kids. And it sounds, at least from, from that discussion, that, that that's the case. So I do want to I do want to close uh, unfortunately with a bit of a serious topic for my parting shot. I am sure that fans who are listening to this show have seen at least some of the coverage about um all the ongoing uh, sexual harassment and and sexual assault issues at Michigan State. Um it has gotten it it, it sort of started I think the 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 first public issues that that came to light were the were around the gymnastics and, and, and Larry Nasser, who's now in prison for the rest of his life. And I think there was a lot of great coverage of, of his uh, sentencing from last week that, that you can go find. But more, I think, germane to what we talk about here on the show, which is mostly college basketball, a little college football thrown in. Um, it seems like the Michigan State basketball program and football programs are, all, are both now totally embroiled in this issue that, that the university just seems to have... Um, a huge issue with reporting um, sexual harassment and sexual assault claims that um, both programs have had multiple student athletes and recruits who were involved in very serious, at least alleged um, sexual assault um, incidents. 
Uh, I, I don't really want to get into all the all the really nasty details of the thing because I think that um, there's a lot of great coverage that folks can find uh, at, over at The Athletic and at Outside the Lines on ESPN. I think both have done a lot of great uh, reporting on this issue. A- and in addition, um, a lot of the local Michigan, Detroit area um, newspapers and, and, um, and online coverage out there. Um, but what's th- I think there's a couple things. First of all, Tom Izzo is one of the coaches that we on this show and I think Duke fans in general and college basketball and fans in general like to point to as he's one, he seems like one of the good guys. He, um, his program is consistently um, sort of overperforming the, the quality of the recruits that they get. Um, they're, they have lots of four-year players who end up in the NBA and it, it seems like things go really well there. We have learned a lot this week about how that, you know, that the, they've been, it seems, ignoring or um or working against a lot of the of of these allegations that there were there were some pretty serious allegations about some former Michigan State recruits who went on to be players in the program guys who who Duke played against multiple times throughout their years and it it it, it's really um I guess first of all a shame that 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 it turns out this is the case for a coach that we all I think pretty much universally admired until this week um, I don't know that Duke fans had any particular feelings about Mark D'Antonio, the football coach, but a lot of similar allegations coming out about him. Um, we'll see if either of these guys is still in their jobs, either you know end of this season or, or going into next season, because um, I think there's a lot more to come on this. I think, but and then stepping back, kind of the the bigger picture here, um, we're we're going through what it does appear to be in this country a a huge. Um, understand like new understanding of of how deep these issues go and and it's i i get that it is somewhat disingenuous or not disingenuous but but maybe that you know two white guys on on this program are not the best people to be to be talking about these issues but so maybe maybe my my perspective on it is if you like me are not so well versed in 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 these sexual assault issues if you don't know the, the depth to which it apparently is present, even on campuses where there are leaders that that we as sports fans from a distance seem to admire, if you if we don't know that, I think it is best for us to wait and see kind of how all the details come out before we rush to throw judgments at things. I think we saw a few years ago at Penn State the situation obviously was a little bit different there because it involved minors, um, but. We saw, and, and we're still seeing, I think, the effect of that scandal and how it has, how it has changed that campus and changed that, that whole community, a big, important community for folks all over um, Pennsylvania and, and Penn State alums all over the world. We don't know how this is going to affect Michigan State. We don't know what the next school is that is going to face these, these kinds of allegations and have to come to terms with it. And I, you know, I, I can't sit here and say that it's not going to be Duke. Um, I don't, I don't honestly know anymore, um, sort of where this story goes, but, um, I hope that folks are, um, reading a lot about it. I hope that they're digesting it. I hope that they are being open-minded to the idea that, you know, some of these, some of these guys who we, I think, treat as, as heroes, maybe a little too much can be flawed people and that they, and that they can make mistakes and that we have to be open to changing our minds about some of these sports legends 
when we find out things like this, because it is not fair to the the folks whose lives have really been devastated by these by these issues to just say, well, we know that Tom Izzo is a great coach and he probably did everything he could have done. Um, well, Joe Paterno was a great coach and he probably did everything he could have done. Um, I would like to wait for facts to come out and I would like to be able to judge the merits of all of these issues kind of as we as we know the most about them. Um, and for everybody just, I guess, finally to be um, mindful that there are a lot of victims here um, and that these these are, are some of the most heinous crimes that, <laughs> that a person can commit. And, um, and we, we, we have to be sensitive to it. We have to understand it. And, and we have to all, I think, commit to being um, more vigilant about ourselves and about our communities. So um, I hope that, that the, the issues at Michigan State get solved as quickly and as, as justly as they can, um, while also understanding that, that this stuff takes time, is very sensitive, and, and is going to hurt uh, a lot of people along the way. I, I think your comments are incredibly well-placed. I'm glad that you brought it up and that we talked about it a little bit. Uh, the, the, the two things that I would add, the first one is I, I think it's, it's very telling that after their game today, Tom Izzo was, was forced to talk um, in his press conference somewhat extensively um, about the investigation into the sexual assaults uh, related to, to his team. Um, he, he said that he's cooperated and, um, and that he you know, plans to continue to cooperate with, with everyone and everything. Um, but he also said, it's been really hard to focus on basketball because whenever you do, you feel guilty. And I think that's a, that's a really telling quote. And uh, you know, I think it reveals something about the nature of these crimes that Tom Izzo, when he, when he tries to do his work, when he tries to do his job, when he tries to do the thing that Michigan State pays him to do, when he tries to do the thing that, that he is best at in this world, coaching basketball, he feels guilty because he knows that some really bad stuff happened um, at his school and um, you know, it looks like it happened under his watch. You can debate how much he should be responsible and how much he should be held responsible for the actions of, of some players, of some recruits and, and the such. Um, we've already seen the president of the university and the athletic director be forced out of their jobs. Um, it, it's, it's tough to see how a athletic scandal doesn't also bring down some coaches when it's, when it's brought down folks like that. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with, with Tom Izzo and with some other of the higher ups there at Michigan state. I mean, they've, they've already lost their athletic director and their president to yeah, yeah. just the just the Larry Nasser stuff. Um, yep. And I think there was some speculation that they knew that these other stories were going to be coming out soon from from ESPN, who has really been taking the lead on breaking a lot of this stuff and, and investigating it. Um, so maybe they resigned kind of ahead of having to deal with all that. But yeah, we'll see where it goes. I, I guess I would close to reiterate that um, there has been a lot of really interesting coverage about this stuff. There is more literature, I think, than any of us have time to to consume. Um, so do yourself a favor, read as much as you can about it, um, understand the issues, and and uh, and you know be be mindful um, because yeah, it, it is hard. And 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 a part of me is does feel sorry for Tom Izzo that that he does have to deal with this in the middle of basketball season. But you know if you if you follow the standard reporting uh, protocol for for sexual harassment issues this stuff doesn't come up when at interopportune times it, it comes up and you're able to deal with it. So um, I think that's going to do it for us. I'm sorry to, uh, to finish on a sad note, but 
but um, such is the news. It doesn't always go our way. Um, so this was episode 102 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Don't forget, if you love the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Um, feel free to leave us a nice review. If you don't like the show, uh, you can email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts. Uh, all comments are welcome either there or on the message thread that we will post on the forum at forums.dukebasketballreport.com. Um, feel free to come join. There's been a lot of really good discussion of, I, I think, the serious issues in college basketball and, like we've said, the, the, the analysis just of the, of the Duke squad um, has, been, has been really fantastic this year. Uh, lots of good insight. We, uh, we've had a lot of really nice, uh, insightful fans from other programs come on and join us, so feel free to come join the discussion there. And finally, if you want to sponsor this show, the Duke Basketball Report podcast, you can email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com, that same address, and uh, we will get you details about sponsoring the program. So um, for Jason Evans, no Donald Wine this week. Uh, I am Sam Klein. I was your host uh, as we talked about um, kind of the up and down week for the Blue Devils and looking forward to a couple of good games this week. With that, Duke fan, take us home. Thank you.